I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Oceans are vast, deep, and largely unexplored. The seas have for countless generations provided a seemingly limitless source of food in exchange for our wastes. It was long thought by many that the vast expanse of our oceans ensured that dilution is the solution to pollution. The choices we make on land threaten life in the ocean. The projected rates of warming, acidification, deoxygenation, and pollution have overwhelmed the ability of the ocean to buffer human activity and soon its ability to sustain many aquatic ecosystems. Entire coastal fisheries and habitats are disappearing, and there is increasing concern that the fish we do eat poses risks due to the pollutants we have disposed in their homes. When I was young, we were told that the sea would feed us in the future, but many fisheries are collapsing. We are told that seafood is brain food and an essential part of a healthy diet, but also that it is loaded with toxins and should be avoided. A growing number of respected scientists, including Sylvia Earle, have told us that they would no more eat wild-caught fish than they would eat a lion, giraffe, or panda. Fish are, after all, wild animals and increasingly threatened ones. Many have recently watched the documentary Seaspiracy and similar exposés, which reveal many concerning issues about global fisheries. Both reviled as vegan propaganda and a brave truth-telling, it has certainly gotten people talking. We want to unpick some of these issues. Is it healthy or dangerous to eat wild-caught fish? Is it sustainable? Is it just? How do we make these choices? Of course, an increasing proportion of the fish we eat is farmed. Aquaculture is a growing industry. It has its own challenges and trade-offs and will be the subject for another day. Today, we'll focus on wild-caught fish. Joining us today, we have Sandy Look, Chief Executive Officer of the Marine Conservation Society. Hi, Sabina Neche. I want to just kick off with asking you how important the oceans are for us and do we actually give enough attention to that importance? We should never forget that more than 50% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from the ocean. The ocean absorbs more than a third of our carbon emissions. It's got a huge role in mitigating the effects of climate change. It regulates our climate and weather. Most of the rain that we have every day here comes from the sea. And really, you know, it's the cradle of life on Earth. It's still so important in terms of supporting great diversity of life and ecosystems that we rely on every day. It provides us with so much food, which I know is exactly what we're going to be talking about. And it's also really good for our physical and mental well-being. It's, you know, it's the great connector 
it connects the continents, it connects water bodies, it connects people, it connects our health and the planet's health. So really, it is hugely important for us every day of our lives. I hadn't realised 50% of oxygen comes from the seas. How does that work? So many of us who work on marine conservation on the oceans every day, to us it's so obvious, but actually most people don't know that the plankton, the algae, the seagrass, they produce so much of the oxygen that we breathe. Mm. It's not just the rainforests, it's the ocean as well, and it's so important. In the presence of Sabina, I'm embarrassed to say this because Sabina is our mud queen and does lots of work (laughs) on the marine and stuff. Most of my work is about the terrestrial environment. And I always have to pop up in meetings going, how about the marine? How about the marine? And we very rarely have enough number and variety of marine experts around the table. Is that in your experience as well? Is that part of what the Marine Conservation Society does? Tell us a little bit about what you do anyway. The Marine Conservation Society are there to restore the health of the ocean because the ocean is in bad health because of what we as humans do to it. We take too much out and we put too much in. So we are there to try and correct that. And you're absolutely right. The ocean sometimes feels like the stepchild of conservation, though what I would say is that it has really improved over the last few years When I started working on ocean and on fisheries and on marine conservation, people really didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. But it has become so increasingly obvious how important it is in terms of climate change. And then things like Blue Planet, they suddenly made the ocean something that was important in people's life and imagination Mm -hmm. and really explained not just the wonder and the awe of it, but also the danger to it at the moment. Even in the marine science community, there had been a dawning realization Mm. that the ocean couldn't continue to take everything we threw at it. Sandy mentioned that we take too much out and we put too much in. So before we go into our focus on eating or not eating fish, can we ask you about the stuff that we put in? What are the pressures that we are creating and we're assuming ocean will recover from? So in terms of putting too much in, Mm. there is, first of all, pollution. And pollution is multifold, right? There's lots Mm. of different kinds of pollution, but there's chemical pollution from industrial processes. There's pollution from agricultural sources, so a lot of sewage. And then there's a lot of plastic pollution now as well. And Mm -hmm. that can be big plastics that are thrown away on land, but it's also microplastics that come out of the production process and also out of the lovely things like sewage sludge, which is accumulating more and more microplastics and chemicals. And of course, then we also do development. It's not just fishing, it's also port developments and that kind of thing, which is also putting things into the ocean. We also have fishing practices such as trawling, which essentially just eradicate the bottom communities. And of course, we're damaging coral reefs, A large part of what we're putting in the ocean is the CO2 that we emit into Mm. the atmosphere because the ocean is in equilibrium with the atmospheric environment. There's a constant exchange of gases. And not only does that CO2 warm the ocean as it warms the atmosphere, but the ocean is becoming more acidic because of the dissolved CO2. And this impairs the ability of organisms to grow shells 
And also the ability of the ocean to store carbon is slowly reducing. And obviously the storage of carbon in the sea is of huge importance for us in terms of climate change and climate change mitigation. Where in the ocean is carbon stored? In lots of different parts of the ocean. So a lot of it is stored in the seabed. Mm -hmm. um, it's also stored in things like seagrass or salt marshes and in lots of actual marine creatures. So a lot of the shellfish stores carbon, but even a big whale is a huge carbon store. And in the natural process of things, it will fall down to the seabed and it will be eaten by other creatures. And so the sea stores carbon in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But the seabed is of huge importance. Mm -hmm. A lot of the organic carbon Sandy was talking about is as it is degraded by microbes stored in the form of methane. Increased temperatures are also causing the ocean sediments near the shore to leak methane, which is a strong greenhouse gas. Mm. So again, we have changing feedback loops as we undermine the ocean's ability to store the carbon. I grew up in Istanbul, so I used to go fishing with my uncle on a little boat. And it was really nice for me. It was an opportunity to be on the water and be in nature. But I remember being taken to the fish market and adults used to say to us, oh, look, lovely fish playing in the water. And it was, I think it was for the first time in Turkey, it was my generation that realized, well, actually that fish weren't playing in the water, weren't jumping about with joy. They were trying to breathe. It is actually a terrible thing to watch, not a fun thing to watch. And that changed my framing of that whole engagement with the sea and eating fish. I still do eat fish, but not as eagerly, I must say. We used to do the same thing. Look at the fish in the surf, look at the tide pools, and then go to the boat where they were hauling up and selling fish and go to the crab shack and eat clam chowder and fish. I love seafood. I find it harder to eat some of it, especially like octopus, one of my favorite things. You know, if you've snorkeled or dived in the water and watched or played with an octopus, there's a conflict between that and their deliciousness. But it's important to note that seafood is culturally important. It's an essential part of the diet of many cultures and many people will tell you to eat fish at least once or twice a week. And it has a number of positive health effects. It's high quality protein. It's rich in a number of micronutrients that are much harder to obtain in other foods, such as the omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D. However, because of the oils, these fish also have the potential to accumulate some of the contaminants we dump in the ocean. The methylmercury, PCBs, dioxins, a number of emerging contaminants. And of course, we've also seen more and more articles about microplastics in the fish we eat, although we don't know yet what the effects are on the fish or ourselves. Mm. So there have been a number of studies trying to evaluate the trade-offs between the health benefits of fish in the diet and the risks. Most studies suggest that single contaminants in fish not caught in highly contaminated sites 
is not high enough to pose a risk and that the health benefits, except maybe for pregnant or nursing mothers or people that eat very high amounts of fish, outweigh the risks. But that's site-specific, species-specific, consumer-specific. I'm probably such a bad person to be talking about this because I'm allergic to fish and seafood. (laughs) (laughs) Now you say it! (laughs) So, so when, when I'm quiet, do you eat seafood? I have to say, no, I don't. But if I could, I would. <laughs> but I would be very careful about what I eat. That's the stories of eating fish all around. It really, really depends on where is it caught? How is it caught? How big or old is it? What other impacts does the fishery have? And that's why it's so complicated. Now, the United Nations have a number of goals and indicators that really focus on the equity of fish, because in some island nations and in some developing countries, seafood is essential to their diet and one of their primary sources of protein. Fish consumption in the world is expected to grow, right? Mm -hmm. And if it does grow then we need to look at how we make that sustainable and responsible. If some of us stop eating fish, what effect will that have on wild fisheries and the fish farming production in future? Is it going to be beneficial Mm -hmm. or detrimental? Let's talk a little bit about fisheries management, again, with a focus right now on wild-caught fish. What do we really need to know to understand and follow some of this argument? Are fisheries collapsing? So fisheries have improved over the last 20 years or so, though 94% of all wild-caught fisheries that we know anything about are fully overexploited. So only around 6% of fish stocks globally are underfished at the moment. But the proportion of stocks that are being fished at biologically sustainable levels, in some areas at least, has improved. It's always about how are the stocks being managed? Are the stocks being looked at in terms of whether they can reproduce Hmm. properly. And that's what's so important about fisheries management. So can we break this down a little bit? How do we know a fishery is sustainably managed? What are the rates? Like you talked about reproduction. Can you tell us a little bit about that cycle? In order to manage a fishery sustainable, you cannot fish more of the fish than the fish is able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. If you start taking out more than they can reproduce, then the fish stock starts shrinking and then at some stage it will collapse. Mm -hmm. And for some stocks, that means they can't recover. Mm -hmm. So some stocks can recover again after that, but others just can't. And so it's really key that we don't fish anywhere close to that Mm -hmm. point. We acknowledge that there are other environmental impacts which can um, affect a stock. Predator-prey relationships change and environmental impacts. Climate change is having a huge effect on fish stocks as well and where they are and how they are produced. So we need to take those things into account as a bit of a precautionary buffer. And then we need to set fishing levels so that fish stocks are still able to reproduce, given the fishing pressure and all those other impacts. 
you say we because the ocean is global, there are jurisdiction issues. If we're fishing responsibly, how do we enforce that others do too? So first of all, governments have to take responsibility and do this properly. And it has to be done on a regional basis. I mean, I, I don't want to get into the politics of EU and, and UK and Brexit and things like that, but fish stocks are shared. So management has to be shared too. And countries have to work together and the governments have to work together to set these fishing levels properly. And then fisheries also needs to monitor and enforce rules properly. One of the other things that's really important is community leadership, because if you don't have buy-in, if you don't have understanding in communities, then why would they follow rules? What can we as consumers, as people do, is we can try and influence our governments. For example, the Marine Conservation Society run campaigns and the public can support those campaigns. We can also do it by choosing fish that is more sustainable. And I think that's the really important thing where we as the privileged consumers who have choice in what we eat can make a massive difference. Because if we who can afford to buy more expensive things, who can afford not to eat certain fish as well, we can influence the supply chain and what they demand of the fisheries in the sea. So that's why it's so important to look at the fish that you eat, because what you choose will influence your supermarket, your fish seller, to ask for different kinds of fish, and that can influence what and how fish is fished in the sea. How can I know what is more sustainable? What parameters do you use to evaluate that? At the Marine Conservation Society, we do something called the Good Fish Guide, and it's on our website. You can download it as an app. You can also get it as a paper version. And we do the work for you because, once again, it's about the complexity of fisheries. One of the first questions that we ask is, what species and what stock and population are we talking about here? And then the second question is, where? Where's this particular species fished? So cod, for example, you can have Alaskan cod or cod from the northern Arctic, and that will be a fish we recommend for eating, and it's a good choice. It's a sustainable stock. However, some of the North Sea cod, really not sustainable because it's an overfished stock. Mm -hmm. So it really depends where the fish is fished. The third thing that's important is what kind of fishing method is being used Bottom trawled fisheries can really affect the seafloor and be really detrimental to the biodiversity there, but not so much in areas where there's lots of movement in the sea and where recovery happens much more naturally anyway. So you can see if we had to go through all of that, we'd be completely puzzled and stunned and overwhelmed, which is why we assess lots and lots and lots of different um, species and stocks. I think 700 and something. Um, and we look at all those things. And then we grade fish in a traffic light system from green, fine to eat, to red, mm -hmm. don't eat this fish, it's endangered. Or Actually, I saw this in the fish markets in Turkey, where they have a ruler for the size of the species that, you know, if it's smaller than that, fishermen shouldn't be selling. Or as the consumer, you should tell the fisherman that you're not going to buy. Is that is that included in the good fish guide as well? 
landing sizes or catching sizes will be part of fisheries management regime. So that's another thing we look at. How is the fishery managed? Is it well enforced? So the sizing of fish will be part of the sort of technical regulations that can apply to fisheries. I think in Turkey, they're asking the consumer to be part of the enforcement, basically, because I think small fish is basically is baby fish because you want to give them a chance to live and reproduce before you eat them, I guess, at least for some species. I want to unpack some of the things you're saying. Just an example, in lockdown, we didn't go to supermarkets. We did click and collect. Also, there's a, a fish man that comes and delivers once a week. But I have failed to get any in-depth information from him about sourcing or anything else. I've also gone to fish counters in town. And when I've asked about sustainability or any information, there wasn't knowledge or I had one young lady tell me, of course, it's a sustainable fish because otherwise there wouldn't be any on the counter because there would be none for fishermen to catch. Yeah. So starting with your fishmonger and the supermarket that isn't telling you about the fish, a lot of that the Good Fish Guide does for you. So in the UK, fish that's sold has to say what species it is and it has to have the common name of that species. And it also says where the fish has been caught and by what method. And if you put that into our app and say, you know, I'm buying tuna and it's caught here and with this method, Mm -hmm. Good Fish Guide will tell you whether that's green rated or red rated or in between. If you're talking to the man on the van or if you're in a restaurant and you want to find out more about the fish that's on the menu, then those are the kinds of questions that you'd want to ask. Where was it caught? what species is it? What fishing method? And if they can't answer that question, then the fact that you're asking is a good thing and will hopefully mean that they'll try and find out a bit more about the fish. And the more of us who do ask, the more pressure there is on restaurants and others who sell fish to have that information to find out about it and to really care about the sustainability. So what I would say is if they can't answer that question, then you say, well, I'm not going to buy any fish then. We hear more and more about studies where they look at the DNA of multiple fish and it's not what it's labeled to be. What is your feeling about this issue or how to address it? I know that a lot of the seafood suppliers and the supermarkets in the UK, at least they're very aware and they do try and test for that. But you need genetic testing and things like that. It's also quite complicated. Another answer to that, though, again, and here you can see that by background, I'm a lawyer. It comes through loud and clear. (laughs) (laughs) Is that you need it regulated well. So in the EU, again, there's catch certificate scheme. You have to have traceability through the fish supply chain. And although that's not fail safe either, those kind of schemes can really help. Tell me a little more about this. So fish in the supermarket have papers? Yeah, basically, (laughs) yes. They have papers. They have certificates that need to be checked when they're first imported into the EU. I'm sure that still applies now in the UK as well. So we talked about the Good Fish Guide, but there are a number of seafood certification schemes. And I know at least in Seaspiracy, there was quite a strong implication that because people were paid to certify different fish, that this was corrupt or suspect. But of course, 
people have to earn a living as well. What are your thoughts about these schemes? These schemes are built quite carefully according to international standards that require transparency, traceability. So although they might not be perfect, for example, in our Good Fish Guide, not every fish that is certified by some of these schemes is a green rated fish. Mm. Some of them are red or amber rated. So, you know, we say consider before you eat. They are something you can rely on because they are carefully run and set up according to standards of, you know, transparency, etc. And also, for example, in aquaculture, where we have a lot of these certification schemes, they're also a really good way for us as the Marine Conservation Society and, and for the consumer to influence standards. So a lot of the work we've been doing has been to try to improve the feed that goes into fish farming through the standard setting bodies. And then you have more influence Mm. on a much wider number of fish farms than you would if you engage with individual ones. I wanted to ask about the technology that we use enforcing these regulations and certification, because I guess with things on land, monitoring might be easier than if you've got a ship on the ocean. How do you know what that ship is doing? And some of these fishing ships are enormous, aren't they? I understand technology improved a lot. How do we trust the information that we're given by the fishermen, fisher people? What? We say we say fishers. fishers. Okay, good. <laughs> technology and the right words. Traditionally, the monitoring of fisheries has been done through individual observers on boats. So especially with those big vessels, you'd have a fisheries observer there constantly. Mm. So lots of my colleagues and friends have worked on these huge boats as fisheries observers and they look at what's caught and they monitor that. You can't do that for all vessels and a lot of fishing vessels are much smaller as well. So what we also have is satellite monitoring. So Mm -hmm. again, that applies more to bigger vessels. They're connected to satellites. And in January, the Marine Conservation Society published a report called the Marine Unprotected Areas Report, where we were analysing satellite monitoring data of fishing vessels offshore. So that's further away from the coast and looking, especially trawlers that have nets Mm -hmm. that scrape along the seabed how much they were fishing in marine protected areas. Mm. And we found that lots of them were, and obviously that led to our report. But the point is that you can track fishing vessels through satellite monitoring. And then the thing that we really need is what we call fully documented fisheries. If you can really count everything that is caught and you can monitor what is being caught by a fisherman and then base your decisions on what should be fished, on that data, Mm. you can manage fisheries much better. And the monitoring of those catches can be done through cameras of boats. Mm. And it also involves other technology like sensors on winches. You know, for example, if your winch for the net comes on, then the sensor pings and then the camera switches on and records what is caught, those kind of things. If we had that kind of technology, remote electronic monitoring, then we could really look at what is being caught. The fishermen, the fishers <laughs> could, could also show and prove that they're fishing well and sustainably, right? It's in the fishers' interest to have that because they can show us, the consumer, look, I'm doing the right thing here. I'm not fishing in marine protected areas. 
I have selective gear and I use it for the right amount of time in the right areas. Mm. And here's what I catch. Mm. If we're going to give subsidies, let's give subsidies for that. Mm. That goes back to the responsible consumer point that you were making. That kind of full documentation needs to be a valued service by consumers. So if they ask, then it becomes more valuable for the fishers then they will invest themselves or they will even ask to be regulated. I mean, we get more and more industries asking government to be regulated better, more clearly, more openly, so that they can do this thing, what you're just describing, that we are better than you think we are. Buy from us. Uh, Don't buy from suppliers who can't prove that they're sustainable, who can't prove that they're reducing their impact. Is that why you're saying this is not a problem that will be solved by moving away effectively? You know, just saying none of us is going to eat fish may not be the solution for that reason, but actually more positive engagement, being better informed and responsible consumers. Yes, consumers and governments, we have to engage to change because we know that the consumption of fish is going to grow Mm. and we need to make sure that it grows without Mm. collapsing our fish stocks, you know, ruining our seas. And if we who've got the privilege and the opportunity to have a choice move away from this, then it's much more likely that fisheries will be more unsustainable. There's a lot of talk about rogue fisheries big factory ship that are fishing illegally in other waters or ships turning off their satellite tracker for periods of time. If a small percentage is following the rules and others aren't, are we headed for disaster anyway? That's why it's so important that we regulate not just the fisheries, but also have these things like Mm -hmm. catch certificates, you know, that the EU really look out for illegal, unregulated and unreported fisheries and try and do everything to prevent buying and sourcing fish that's been Mm -hmm. caught in that way. Mm. We talked about managing the active fisheries, but there is also a, a way of regulating fish and almost giving them a break, right? So we designate some areas as marine protected areas and then either ban all fishing or reduce the type of fishing that could happen between them. And it's a big thing for UK, actually, because my team has done some work on this. When we think about UK and the seas, we're really thinking about the seas that are around Great Britain and the Irish Sea. But actually, UK has a lot of overseas territories, some of which have enormous sea areas, like small islands like Pitcairn. We did some work on how all the area around Mm. Pitcairn that is designated as marine protected area where lots of this massive fishing effort also takes place. Do you have any work on that area, Sandy? Marine protected areas are one of the ways that we can help the health of our seas to recover. They're really important for that. Mm -hmm. Most marine protected areas aren't specifically about helping fish stocks recover. A lot of them are designated for particular features. It could be seafloor features. It could be things like coral reefs. It can be specific species of cetacean, dolphins, for example, or seabirds. So they're more about biodiversity in the ecosystem more generally Mm. rather than fish stocks. In terms of fisheries management, you do also get areas that are closed at particular times of the year where fish stocks are reproducing or spawning, for example, nursery areas, so that they're more temporary and more mobile, but they're also really important tools to protect fish stocks. Mm. And general marine protected areas 
can help fish stock recovery as well because of, of what's called a spillover effect. And it depends a lot on different species as well. So it's really well documented that shellfish, for example, if you stop catching shellfish in areas of the sea because they're more sedentary, they're less mobile, but then when they reproduce, they spill out and it can really benefit the fishery. That seasonality thing is actually interesting, talking about fish being so cultural. In Turkey, it even makes it to the news report. Your eight o'clock news report would say season for Black Sea anchovies is closed now or they open and they actually know it's when it when it's open. <laughs> they yeah, usually announce the it, you know, <laughs> they go and film little boats of fishers going out to, to catch the Black Sea anchovy, which is a it's even got songs written about it and dances, actually. Black Sea folk dances are all about how the fish and the waves and the storms because they're a big fishing community. I think overall with fisheries, it's all about effective management. It's all about setting sustainable fishing levels based on science and taking account of the impacts on the marine environment and then monitoring properly and enforcing those laws properly. Obviously, I would say that. And then for businesses and consumers, it's all about asking, asking and demanding fish that is from more sustainable fisheries and from responsible fish farms and use the good fish guide, which helps you make some of those really difficult decisions, just makes those decisions a bit easier. But definitely always ask because that's the way that as consumers, we can exert pressure. It's clear that not only is fish delicious, but it can be good for us. And it's inevitably an important source of protein in many parts of the world. Fish consumption is set to grow with growing population. How that's managed and sustained is a challenge. And it's going to be an interesting mix, as Sandy has told us, managing wild-caught fisheries and developing aquaculture safely and sustainably. There are certification schemes and there are a lot of information which can allow you to become an informed consumer of fish where you don't get the information you need or demand. I think the message here is don't buy the fish. The more we demand information, the more there's an economic incentive for sustainable management, the more people will sustainably manage. That said, a number of people will argue that eating wild animals is not a good idea. That's a personal choice. And there's a lot out there for you to consider and balance. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure mm -hmm. talking to you. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCoon and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.